What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, I'm Martha Hennessy. And what's your relationship to Dorothy Day? I'm number seven of her nine grandchildren. Martha, do you want to see your grandmother named a saint? Yes, of course. <laughs> and and why? why? Why is that an of course for you? Well, because she is a saint and because we desperately need her in these times. Um, you know, we're, we're facing um, nuclear extinction. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. In September of 1945, Dorothy wrote a scathing essay. You know, she witnessed the dropping of the bomb. And she was very acutely aware very early on what this bomb represented. She also participated in the air raid drills from 1955 to 61. They sat out on the park benches, refusing to duck and cover, because she pointed out that this was psychological warfare at the height of the Cold War. So she was very aware of the whole nuclear issue um, from the very beginning. So the city of New York wants to honor its native daughter, Dorothy Day. So they're naming a Staten Island ferry after Dorothy, which is a beautiful thing. You know, she loved the ferry. She rode on it. She commuted from Staten Island to Manhattan so frequently. We celebrated the commissioning of the boat, which meant putting a plaque up, which meant having speakers, the commissioner of the Department of Transportation. And, and again, we have a situation of the divine meeting the bureaucratic. And I was able to give a short speech, uh, you know, about her love of the ferry. It was a day of celebration. It was good weather. And part of um, what I was asked to do was to christen the boat, um, to uh, crack a bottle of champagne over the railing of the $84 million ferry boat that will be moving into action soon. And when I cracked the bottle, I said, in the name of Dorothy Day, May we abolish all war and nuclear weapons. And I'm hoping that those words can go out because, you know, it's not just about idolizing and adoring Dorothy. It's about understanding her life's work and what she faced in her times with nuclear weapons build up. But again, let's not domesticate Dorothy. Let's hold her up as an example, just like Jesus. What is the work and what are we supposed to be doing as Catholics, as disciples of Christ in our own times? Dorothy Day is well known for her prophetic work for social justice and peace in the 20th century. She speaks to different people in different ways. She inspired her granddaughter Martha to work for nuclear abolition. She's inspired countless Catholic workers to devote their lives to serving the poor, creating communities of hospitality, and doing peacework. Still others are inspired by her deep traditional piety and her devotion to the church. 
and people from all these groups have come together to try to get Dorothy recognized as a saint of the Catholic Church. It's the most democratic process in the Catholic Church. It begins with the people. I can't emphasize enough, it doesn't begin in Rome. On this special deep dive episode, we're taking you inside the process of how the Catholic Church makes saints. We'll hear from Vatican historians and journalists about how the process evolved from people being devoted to holy people in their cities to a codified Vatican process, and how that's continued to change up to today. If it hasn't already happened, we're going to see Twitter and Facebook and other things being sent in with the documentation for sainthood causes. We'll talk with people who have worked on canonization causes about how the cost and politics of the process can lead to causes being delayed indefinitely. The word that I've coined is the sainthood industrial complex, that it creates a stream of income and it also raises expectations and creates disappointment for people. And we'll look into the requirement of miracles and how they're verified and why some people think that ought to change. I'm Colleen Dully. This is Inside the Vatican. By the time Dorothy Day died in 1980, people were already talking about her as a saint. It led her to famously quip, don't call me a saint, I don't want to be dismissed that easily. But it couldn't stop people from thinking of her that way. At the memorial service in St. Patrick's Cathedral, Terence Cardinal Cook walked down among the people and said very softly, I may not have agreed with everything Dorothy Day said or did, but I think we had a saint among us. The cathedral was filled with an awed silence as if there was an acknowledgement in the silence and in the depth to which that had affected the people there. I'm George Horton, and I'm a vice postulator of the cause of Dorothy Day. And then uh, Cardinal O'Connor, uh, who had never met Dorothy but had been to the Catholic worker, um, asked, why not Dorothy? And I think he heard from a variety of people again that her sainthood cause should be put forward. Actually, this is when I became involved, Colleen. Uh, Cardinal O'Connor asked to talk with people who lived with her, who knew her, who believed in her. And so Cardinal O'Connor looked to me uh, to bring this meeting together. His secretary, the Cardinal's secretary, um, Monsignor Walsh, was in the room. Uh, and of course, Cardinal O'Connor. Uh, so there were church officials there. Almost unanimously, people wanted Cardinal O'Connor to go forward. Even after the discussions of what some of the roadblocks might be, shortly before Cardinal O'Connor died, he took letters from the people who had attended those meetings and brought them to Rome. And shortly before he died, she was named Servant of God. And we have uh, followed that process uh, since then. This is how a canonization cause starts, with people who knew someone holy getting in touch with their bishop and saying, we think this person should be a saint. I called up one of the world's experts on sainthood to learn more about the process. I'm Ken Woodward. I was religion editor for 38 years of Newsweek magazine, and I am the author of Making Saints, How the Catholic Church Determines Who Becomes a Saint, Who Doesn't, and Why. 
Well, the steps of canonization are not the way they've been canonizing throughout most of history. The steps right now are the following. I am going to make Colleen a saint. <laughs> and I'm going to presume that um, she can be the patron saint of podcasters. I'm going to presume that um, since she's so young in her later life, she's going to um, devote herself to, say, the immigration issue using her podcasting and other skills. And she's going to be a daily communicant, let's say. And her husband dies when she's 50 years old and she starts a community um, that is devoted, like somewhat like the Catholic workers, to the immigrant immigration issue as this continues throughout the century. And when she dies, there are people who think that she was a saint. And so what do they do? And this is the first phase. Before anything is done, people would have to be visiting your grave. They would have to be talking about you in terms of ex ex uh, exceptional holiness. Uh, they would probably organize what they call a guild, which is just a group that's going to um, keep talking about you. They're going to collect stories of, of, of miracles that people uh, say they experience by praying to you. And eventually they're going to badger the local bishop uh, to um, take this seriously and to look into it. If the bishop agrees, uh, he'll check out with Rome to see if there aren't any heresies in your history. Um, I might be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and they'll presume that's not the case. So what they'll do is investigate. Now, you got to be careful, Colleen, because all your emails, all your letters, everything written about you, everything you have written, will be studied and examined. I don't think they get into phone calls yet, but possibly. And this is determined if there's a possibility that you had manifest virtues to an extraordinary degree, faith, hope, and charity, the theological virtues, and the old Greek Aristotelian virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, and the specifically Christian virtues of humility, which doesn't come easy to journalists or podcasters, mm -mm. and uh, certainly charity. And if the case is made and Rome accepts it, uh, you become a formal cause. In the past, Ken tells me, an official known as a postulator would be assigned to gather the information and make the case for my sainthood. But there was also a devil's advocate who would find arguments against it. Today, the postulator reviews and organizes everything, including investigating alleged miracles attributed to my intercession. I would only need one miracle for beatification and a second miracle to be a fully canonized saint. There's one absolute thing that you absolutely have to have that we haven't really focused on, and that is you got to be dead. Yeah, um, we, we did skip that. <laughs> yeah. Saints are made by others, that is to say, the people that are pushing you. And by the way, just at the beginning, when people are pushing, it's the most democratic process in the Catholic Church. Hmm. I never thought about it that way. It begins with the people. I can't emphasize enough, it doesn't begin in Rome. In fact, Rome didn't used to be involved at all. For centuries, saints were just people who were venerated by a local community. People didn't know who other people's saints were. All the saints were local saints. And in some cases, like Cyril Methodius, uh, Rome would send um, missionaries out to the heathen, let's say, and they would missionize and they would uh, convert some. And then in 
like Cyril Mathura, they get killed. And as soon as they got killed, then the, these people had their own martyrs. So it, it was um, a, a rather happenstance process. In any case, um, it became the prerogative of the local bishops to declare who were saints. And gradually the papacy took over because saints were to be revered by the whole church. So the papacy had to develop into something like we understand it today before it could take control of the process. And what does that begin? 11th century, I think, uh, something like that, 12th century. Um, the Vatican Congregation for the Causes of Saints has a list of everybody who's been canonized and beatified. And that starts in uh, 1234, 1234, easy way to remember. But even then, you had a lot of local saints that had to be recognized by the Pope. So they, they emphasized beatification. You could beatify some of these people, but you couldn't canonize them. So that's really the way it began. As the Vatican worked to codify its canonization process and ensure that not just anyone was being named a saint, but people who really lived lives of virtue, there came to be a lot of rules in place. After someone died, there was a 50-year waiting period before their canonization cause could even be opened. And they needed up to eight verified miracles. The process took an incredibly long time. And because it depends so much on people working constantly to push it through, their canonization cause could fall by the wayside and be forgotten. This meant that most of the people whose causes did make it through the process were priests or nuns. People whose dioceses or religious orders had a constant supply of labor and resources to keep that process moving over decades. But by the 1960s, it was clear to the world's bishops that that system no longer worked. While they were gathered in Rome for the Second Vatican Council, the bishops articulated a universal call to holiness, that is, a call to all Christians to live saintly lives. John Paul II came in to office, I think, with the idea that there should be more saints in the church. And it took him four or five years to unveil the changes, but when he made the changes, they were very significant. This is John Thavis. He's a retired journalist who covered the Vatican for 30 years, including Pope John Paul II's papacy, during which a historic number of people were recognized as saints and blesseds. He redrew the entire process of the Vatican's approval for sainthood causes. And essentially what he did was he began by shortening the time span, the waiting period before a cause can be introduced from 50 years to five years. Even more important than that, he winnowed out a lot of the, the intermediary stages of a sainthood. One of the streamlining acts was eliminating what was referred to as the devil's advocate. The devil's advocate was established way back in the 1700s. And I think the Catholic Church at that time was trying to show the world that, hey, listen, we don't just bless anybody who wants to be called a saint. Uh, no, we actually challenge uh, these people. And we have a, a person here whose job it is to challenge the arguments made by supporters of a sainthood cause. Now, when John Paul II eliminated the position, immediately there were cries of, oh, he's making it so easy, even I could become a saint. Uh, that wasn't true. If you talk to people today who are involved in the sainthood process at the Vatican, they will tell you that the idea was we should all be somewhat of a devil's advocate. 
In other words, the idea of vetting and challenging should run through the entire process and not just be left to one person. John Paul also cut down the number of miracles that were required. Before John Paul II made those changes in 1983, you needed at least four miracles to be declared a saint, sometimes eight. Oh my gosh. John Paul II reduced that number to two miracles and only one in the case of martyrs. Uh, If you are declared a martyr, you are immediately beatified without a miracle. And then you need one more miracle after beatification to go on to canonization. I think he made it clear and underlined that these are ways that validate our approval that a person is a saint. In other words, by the time a miracle is submitted, this person has already been declared to have lived his virtues heroically, which is the main criterion for sainthood. So miracles are kind of God's sign that, yes, you can feel sure of this, but they're not the end of the sainthood process. They're, they're almost a side issue. And one Vatican official said to me once, you know, the Pope could wake up tomorrow and say, we don't need any miracles, and that would be fine. No Pope has gone so far as to eliminate miracles altogether yet. But John thinks it's not impossible that we'll see the number of required miracles go down to one in our lifetimes. In the meantime, Pope Francis has taken it on himself to continue John Paul II's reforms. In 2017, to everyone's surprise, he issued a document that recognized another official path to sainthood. Before that, there were three established paths to canonization. First, there's the one Ken outlined. Someone dies. A local diocese or religious order decides to gather information on that person and send it to Rome. And if Rome recognizes that this person lived out the Christian virtues in an exceptional way, they're named venerable. After one miracle, they're named blessed. And after another, they can be canonized. Then there's the path of martyrdom. If someone is killed out of hatred of the faith and the Vatican verifies it, they're named blessed. They only need one verified miracle to become a saint. And then there's this third way, which sort of harkens back to the early days of saints being people who were widely recognized as holy. There's another obscure path towards sainthood, which actually has been used by Pope Francis on several occasions, which is called equivalent canonization. It's a strange phrase, but it it basically means this person had fame of holiness. We don't need to run through all the bureaucratic hoops to prove it, because the people of God already recognize this person as a saint. And in in this particular case, uh, we accept that. Now, interestingly, Pope Francis used that approach when it came time to canonize Pope John XXIII. He wanted to canonize Pope John Paul II and John XXIII at the same time. And he went to the saint makers uh, at the Vatican and said, so this is what I want to do. And they said, Holy Father, no, we we're not ready with John XXIII. We're still looking into several alleged miracles. And the Pope said, well, forget about that, because we all know he's a saint, and I trust the people of God. In 2017, Pope Francis introduced a fourth path, being a martyr of charity. These are people who have given their life for another person, and it's different from martyrdom, 
in the sense that martyrs are killed in hatred of the faith. You know, this, this may be someone who simply laid down his life for another person in an act of Christian charity. And uh, as the Pope explained it, it doesn't mean that this person is uh, kind of a discounted saint at the end. It doesn't mean that we don't investigate his or her life, but it means that there is less burden of proof needed in terms of the person's entire lifetime history. You don't need to look over everything the person has ever written or said. You know, uh, you simply interview witnesses, you ascertain that this person made the ultimate sacrifice out of love and with certainty that of an early death. And that, because it imitates the life of Christ, uh, the Pope felt was worthy of sainthood. No one has yet been canonized under this fourth path, although John says the Vatican is investigating a few candidates. For Pope Francis, the first Pope from the Global South, there was one other big obstacle that made the canonization process less accessible to ordinary people the cost. One of his first acts was to investigate how sainthood causes are paid for. Now, uh, and he immediately convened a study of the postulators. Postulators are officials who promote the sainthood cause and who generally guide it through the Vatican's rather labyrinthian bureaucracy. And some of these postulators made a lot of money. They charged a lot of money. Uh, I asked one once, how much does an average sainthood cause cost? And he said, you have to be prepared to pay about $300,000. Well, I mean, if you are an individual or a group of Catholics, you can pretty much forget that price tag. If you're a religious order, maybe you can raise the money or you can afford it. So the cost automatically favored those who had an organization behind them who either had the money or could raise it. Pope Francis didn't like that. He said, this, uh, this excludes so many people from coming to our attention. So he launched a study. The postulators didn't like it at all. Uh, they, felt like, they felt like they were being audited, and they were. Um, but that's typical Pope Francis. Uh, he then revived the fund for poor sainthood causes. And the idea being, let's reallocate some of these funds. I really don't think that's made a heck of a lot of difference because, to put it bluntly, the Vatican doesn't have a lot of loose change floating around to put into a fund for sainthood causes. But it was symbolic. So what ended up coming out of this study? You know, it's like so many things that happen at the Vatican. A document is issued and then it goes underground and nobody has revealed exactly how much money is in this fund and where it's gone. So, uh, you know, it's probably a good topic for an investigative reporter. Without transparency around the finances, it's difficult to gauge how many causes deal with money being an obstacle. And even well-funded causes can be stalled indefinitely for political reasons. After the break, the politics and money behind sainthood causes. Stay with us.
When we last heard about the Dorothy Day cause, the Archbishop of New York, Cardinal John O'Connor, had taken some letters from people who knew Dorothy to Pope John Paul II, and he named her a servant of God. It seemed like a strong start to a canonization cause that had a lot of supporters. But then it stopped. After Cardinal O'Connor died, there was a period that I want to say for about 10 years where the cause was stalled. That's George Horton again, the vice postulator of Dorothy's cause. Although he was the New York coordinator of Dorothy's cause, he also worked full-time for Catholic charities. And the diocese had different priorities then. If you think back in those years from 2005 to 2015, uh, those were years in which the Archdiocese of New York was restructuring, closing schools and parishes. There were financial issues in the diocese. The clerical sexual abuse crisis was going on. So on the one hand, there were tremendous challenges being faced by the diocese, and the hierarchy was pretty focused on, on many of those things. But sainthood causes, especially on the local level, are a democratic process. And Dorothy's supporters weren't content to let her cause fall by the wayside. I went to a conference at St. Thomas University in, in Miami. And there at the conference were a number of people. And they, they basically confronted me and said, is this going to happen or is this not going to happen? And it was a wake-up call, clearly a wake-up call. We came back and I reported on this, and the diocese immediately made the kinds of commitments that we needed. Around the same time, Pope Francis pressed the gas pedal. Mr. Speaker, the Pope of the Holy See. In a speech to Congress during his visit to the United States, Pope Francis named Dorothy Day as a great American. Her social activism her passion for justice and for the cause of the oppressed were inspired by the gospel, her faith, and the example of the saints. After the talk, when the Pope came to New York, Cardinal Dolan tried to nudge the case forward with the Pope. Cardinal Dolan, in writing, I don't know if they were in the Pope-mobile or not, but he was writing, and he said, why not make her venerable today? Why not why not move her? And, and the Pope was open and, re and responsive. And uh, he said, well, let me talk to the Secretary of State. Uh, and uh, his Secretary of State said, well, that's a great idea, but the cause is not even in Rome yet. So the Pope said to the Cardinal, well, at least we'd have to have the case in Rome before I do this. The onus was on the New York Archdiocese. If they wanted Dorothy's cause to go forward, they had to gather tens of thousands of pages of information on Dorothy and send it off to the Vatican. To make that happen, they hired Jeff Corgan. My role was to gather the evidence. So when we needed to get, you know, 35 testimonies of people who knew Dorothy Day, um, I tracked them down. Uh, I, and, you know, made sure they had plane tickets, made sure they had a place to stay in New York. Uh, made sure that we had, you know, the, the room up in the tribunal all set up uh, so that the uh, cardinal's delegate could interview uh, them properly. So there was, there was uh, testimonies. There was gathering everything that she published. When you have 10,000 pages that has to be looked at by two theologians each, it really slows down the process. And then you throw in the unpublished work where we have to find all of her diaries 
and then have them transcribed. We had a team of uh, about 125 transcribers all over the world. And then you also had to gather documents like police records, which is probably unusual for a sainthood cause. Yeah, Dorothy had uh, six arrests, which you should have seen the look on our postulator, who's like our canon lawyer in Rome when we told him she had six arrests, you know, sort of a new a new thing for him. And we had to go back and, and uh, request through Freedom of Information Act, Dorothy's FBI file. Uh, we had to hunt for um, some of the more obscure arrests that were not in the FBI file. It's a lot of following directions and doing things in a particular order. And if you don't do it the way the Holy See wants, you got to start all over. You know, I remember when our postulator showed up and I had been d doing double-sided copying on uh, all of the publications I've been finding for two years. And uh, he said, oh, everything has to be single-sided copied uh, because the, the then uh, Congregation for the Causes of Saints uh, demands that. And they have their reasons. So that's what's one of the things that's very maddening about the process and actually makes it more expensive unnecessarily. It took Jeff seven years to gather all this evidence. He was being paid by the diocese for his time, but that was only part of the cost. I got paid. So did the person who transcribed the testimonies, you know, the court reporter, you know, we're people with skills who were hired to do a job and we did it well. Uh, you know, to the, you know, worker deserves remuneration, you know, scripture tells us. Uh, that adds up. For my part of it, I mean, if you think it was like between forty and 80000 a year over seven years. So, I mean, it adds up to like at least 250000 maybe 300000 Then there are additional costs for gathering and compiling and printing the documents. Here's the vice postulator, George Horton. We paid uh, Marquette University some $20,000 to pay students to take her diaries and upload them so we could then pass them out to people. Then all the documents are shipped to Rome, and that costs money. And the dicastery gets paid, yeah. They, get, they got paid when the boxes showed up, and then they sent a bill for opening the boxes. Really? Which I thought was interesting, but... You know, like, take a step back. They got to pay their expenses, and that's how they figured out how to pay them. There's also an annual fee that the diocese pays to the dicastery to keep the cause open. And then there are the Roman postulators, the people Pope Francis audited, who live in Rome and work with the dicastery to keep the cause moving forward. They get paid a monthly fee. Here's John Thavis, the Vatican journalist, again. One of the best postulators in Rome, the one Americans used to run to before he retired, told me that you have to be ready to spend about $300,000 on a sainthood cause. And when I, my eyes, I think, must have lit up because he, he immediately defended himself and said, look, you don't understand. This takes years of documentation. Uh, he mentioned the printing costs, which actually still occurs. It's always the printing costs. The printing costs. Um, he mentioned the, the travel that he does. Every time there's a miracle reported, he would have to travel. He would have to interview witnesses. Witnesses would 
have to be called before a notary. You know, everything would be recorded. Uh, interviews, research, travel, printing costs. These are the things he mentioned. And this may go on for 10 or 20 years. It just depends. So what does this all add up to? Here's George. So it's probably been a million dollars um, to date. One, and having said that, that sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. But Colleen, I must emphasize, we have tried very hard to keep costs down. We had over 100 volunteer transcribers who would receive a page or two of a diary and then give us back the transcription. That was an amazing process. If you can imagine what that would have cost uh, if we'd had to pay for that. And again, all of the time of the diocesan officials um, have been donated. And not, there have been no, no recompense to the many diocesan officials, the theological censors, the historical commission. My own time has been subsidized by Catholic charities. Even though I volunteered my own time for the cause, first as a diary transcriber and then as a member of the steering committee, I still had hang-ups about the cost, like a lot of Dorothy's followers do. It feels wrong that the diocese has spent a million dollars on her canonization cause, while the people who really live her legacy, the Catholic worker houses, continue to struggle financially. I asked Ken Woodward if, after writing a whole book on the canonization process, he was also concerned about the cost. If Dorothy Day is only going to cost a million dollars, that's not much. It's a shocking number to me. I know, but it's also labor of, what, 20 years? Factor it out over 20 years, and that's not that much money, you see. So it's the length of time, and if you will, the, the person hours involved in this, uh, that, that is largely the cost. Dorothy Day's been dead how long? I mean, go way back. Since 1980. Yeah, okay, so we're now 40-something we're now, um, years. We're getting up to 50 years, all right? And, and people have been involved in this uh, almost that full length of time. So 50 years into a million dollars doesn't come out to be very much money. If you think of it that way, rather than any other way. Do you think it's the case that some causes end or don't start because there's no money for it? No. No? no what do you think really to blame? Don't. The lack of person power? You really don't know why it's taking certain causes so long. Ken isn't convinced that the cost of canonization is prohibitive. But there's another major factor that can stall an otherwise well-supported canonization cause. Politics. John Thavis investigated one such case for his book The Vatican Prophecies, investigating supernatural signs, apparitions, and miracles in the modern age. The story of Emile Capon is, is a fascinating one. The half-forgotten Korean campaign. And men who should never be forgotten. Especially... Such men as Chaplain Amo Joseph Capon. He was a chaplain in the army, but before that, he was a local pastor in a tiny town called Pilsen, Kansas, outside of Wichita. He, frankly, was bored as a pastor, and he joined the army as a chaplain. He admits this in his diaries. And uh, he was shipped off to Korea in one of the first batches of troops that went to Korea. And was also one of the first batches of soldiers who were captured by communist Chinese troops who were helping the North Koreans. 
he spent months in a Chinese-run prison camp. And his reputation for holiness grew among the people who were in that camp. He did everything from pick lice from their skin every day to sneaking out at night to steal spare food. But Father Capon did more than feed the bodies of his men. He fed their souls. He fed their hope. He fed their will to resist. He taught them how to fashion vessels out of iron because he knew how to do all this. He was a farm boy and he saved a lot of lives. He carried one man 60 miles on his back to the prison camp after saving his life from execution by pushing a Chinese guard's rifle away with his hand. And so he died in that camp. When the soldiers were released, they brought back all these stories, and he was actually a, a well-known figure in the 1950s. There was a TV program chronicling his life starring James Whitmore. So Father Capon took upon himself the role of the good thief. So, you know, he was a, a well-known figure at the time, but a lot of years have passed since then, and the wider world has forgotten him. The people of Kansas have not. They pray to him all the time. When I went there, I spoke with three young people. All three were athletes. All three are convinced they were saved because of prayers to Father Capon. One was a pole vaulter who cracked his skull open when he landed on the pavement. He should have died, uh, according to the doctors. One was uh, a marathon runner who dropped dead at the finish line. When I say dead, I mean he went into cardiac arrest. They, they said he's dead. He came to in the ambulance and began talking. And no one could figure out how that happened. But in, in all these cases, prayers were immediately offered to Father Capon. The third case was a 12-year-old girl who was at a soccer meet, scored a goal, went over to the sidelines and began spitting up blood. The start of an autoimmune disease that ravaged her body for months. The doctors told her parents she will never recover. They started a prayer chain to Father Capon. She recovered fully. She was playing soccer again when I saw her. So these are pretty strong cases and they've all been presented to Rome and Rome has delayed. Why has Rome delayed? The Vatican has been in very sensitive negotiations with the government of China for years. And something like this could just upset the apple cart, the diplomatic apple cart enough. So it may be prudence on the Vatican's part just to wait. All of this, the money, the politics, can feel a little shady and worldly compared with our glowing spiritual connection with the saints. But there is one part of the process that connects us undeniably to the spiritual, and that's miracles. Remember what John told us earlier about miracles. Since they come after this long process of verifying that someone lived a life of heroic virtue, a miracle is kind of a stamp of approval from God, saying, yes, go ahead, canonize this person. Miracles weren't always medical, like most of them are today. But as the church got its canonization process in order and tried to build more stringent requirements into that process, medicine became one way to be fairly certain that a miracle had occurred. Here's John again. The medical
criteria were established in the 1700s by a cardinal called Prospero Lambertini. He later became a pope. And he essentially tied the sainthood process to medical science. The reason, well, there were several reasons. One was because he wanted to show the Catholic Church was not opposed to science in verifying miracles. In fact, science backed up the church. And also, it became a lot easier to verify miracles uh, because you had objective records. Doctors keep records, especially in the first world. Uh, there are, and, and there are diseases, the more was learned about treating diseases and diseases and which ones couldn't be cured, it became pretty easy to say, well, then it must be a miracle. Interestingly, in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been a movement by some people at the Vatican to move away from medical miracles. Why? Because it's, it's, now it's 99% of all the miracles. It's almost, in a way, it's made science the sole arbiter of sainthood in the eyes of these critics. They want to see a wider definition of miracles the way one person put it to me was, and he had a conversation with Pope John Paul II about this. Um, he said, Holy Father, we need to recognize, number one, that by relying on medical miracles, we're essentially discriminating against poor countries. They don't have the expertise, uh, the record keeping, the, the medical staffs of all the facilities that the first world does, and the Pope agreed. Uh, he also said that, you know, why isn't it a miracle if, for example, someone prays for, and I'll just throw out a couple of examples that he gave. Let's say a young man is a drug addict. His parents pray to a saint that he can overcome this, and he does, and there's no other explanation for it. Uh, you know, he didn't go into treatment, whatever. Uh, let's say a couple is on the verge of divorce, breaking up. Their children pray that they stay together. They have a sudden reconciliation. He wanted the category of miracles to be expanded to include these so-called moral miracles. And John Paul II agreed, but told him, I'm not going to be able to do this because my experts are going to tell me it's too difficult to verify. It is possible that we'll see a movement away from medical miracles. But in the meantime, they remain the gold standard for verification. I asked Jeff if he had seen any compelling leads on miracles for Dorothy Day's canonization cause. What we found was uh, a number of uh, claims that people had that were clearly not miraculous, but were pretty cool. You know, good, good things happen in people's lives. That's great. Uh, you can't prove a lot of this. Uh, uh, you, we actually did get things like I prayed to find a parking spot in New York City on the street and I got it. I know a priest who goes to the Catholic worker who says that happens to him every time he's on Third Street. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it, it likely is a miracle. However, it's not provable if in a miracle trial. And I'll have to just tell you, you know, without violating any of the oaths or anything, that I haven't seen anything that, that convinces me, you know, let alone a, a 
you know, a tribunal of, of judges who have done this sort of thing before. That a miracle occurred due to the intercession of Dorothy Day. Even after all the transcription work, the cause getting stalled and unstalled, a million dollars spent over the 42 years since Dorothy's death, there is still so much work to be done. If you think of what, you know, we've just dropped on the doorstep, we know that they've opened the boxes because they build us, but we don't know what's happened with the information in there. What will be done is our postulator will write a kind of a book, really. It's, it's, it's called the Positio, where he summarizes all of the evidence and arranges it in a way that builds a case. And that will take about a year to do, for him to do. And then the members of the dicastery, who are you know bishops and archbishops, they will then read that positio and discuss it and make a t determination, uh, really a verdict. Did Dorothy Day live a life of heroic virtue? I believe that answer will be yes. They're going to read the positio, but then are they also going to read the like tens of thousands of pages we sent? I think that that's a possibility. I think that they will be read by people who work at the dicastery and they'll flag things. Will her uh, diaries talking about the meaning of the Eucharist for her be read very carefully? Yes, I have no doubt. Will her gardening columns for the Staten Island advance um, be read with the same rigor? I doubt it. In the midst of all this bureaucracy, it can be easy to lose track of where this process started with the people who loved Dorothy. I went back to her granddaughter, Martha, who's been working on the canonization cause for years, in between shifts at the Catholic Worker and protesting for nuclear abolition. I asked her what keeps her pushing forward on the canonization cause when she's already continuing her grandmother's work every day. Oh, it's a convoluted, difficult process like so many things in our lives. Um, it's an archaic process, but it's a beautiful process. Um, there were so many people who came to give first account testimony of their, you know, exposure to Dorothy and, and her impact on them. So it's a combination of a very uh, personal process, but a very dry uh, bureaucratic process. And yes, there is a problem with all the money that's being poured into this process. You know, the, the, the church is a, a bureaucratic institution that makes uh, certain requirements that sometimes we can feel quite impatient and exasperated by them. But just the same, we move forward in faith because the process is in the hands of God and it's in our hands in terms of our studying and exploring uh, who she was. And that's a beautiful thing. That's why we need the saints is because they have this capacity to affect us. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes, who is also our executive producer, and it was written by me, Colleen Dully. Production assistance for this episode came from Cristobal Spielman and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound design and engineering by Ashley Spillane. 
If you enjoyed this deep dive episode, please share it with a friend. And to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, consider purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.